already. I'll invite you to take a copy of the scriptures, whether you have that on your phone or uh, if you brought one with you. If you didn't bring one, you can uh, take the red one in the pew in front of you. And I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book in the scriptures. And uh, we're going to read an extended, uh, really probably the longest passage of scripture I've ever attempted to preach from. Um, We're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 32. We are in a series which we're calling Revive Us Again, which is really a a heart cry where we began a couple of weeks ago um, where in Isaiah 64, where Isaiah says, oh, remember he he begins that 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 chapter with just the two letter word. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We sang that hunger, that longing, that yearning in these songs already. Oh, oh, our Lord, how we need you. And so we're looking in in the scriptures uh, in this series on times uh, of renewal of God's people, times of awakening, times of revival, where God's work, his normal work is intensified and where he leads his people back into a, a, a new understanding of his grace and new, under, new ways of obedience where more people are, are, are walking in the ways of the Lord. And so people are, are coming in and joining God's family in, 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 in droves. And so that's what we're looking at. We're not planning a revival. We, we're really um, saying, oh, Lord, that you would revive us, that you would give us new life and awaken us and renew us in our day. And so we're likening revival to this wave and, uh, and, and us as surfers. And all we can do is, you know, a, a surfer has no power in and of themselves to create the waves. But what, they can, what a surfer can do is you can prepare and you can posture and you can position yourself so that when the wave comes, you're ready. And so in this series, we're, we're, we're crying out, oh, Lord, would you revive us? Would you have this, this heart cry? And we looked la- a couple weeks ago at, at the life of Josiah, little King Josiah, eight-year-old boy who becomes king and who, who set his heart at the age of 16. He set his heart to seek the God of his father, David, it says. We're asking that, that we would set our hearts towards seeking God's face personally. Last week, we looked at... Um, Nehemiah and Ezra and, and, and how Ezra had set his heart to study the scriptures. And we looked at the, the, the role the scriptures played in that great awakening in, in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And so as in this series, and as I'm talking to a number of you, there is this longing. I'm, I'm, see, I'm hearing it in, in many of your voices, this longing, this hunger for God to move. As, we, as, we, as you look at the world, as you read a newspaper or watch the news, and you look at the state of our world, and you look at the state of our nation, as we look at the state of the church in our nation, we're saying, God, it can't be business as usual. It can't be status quo anymore. Lord, we need you to move. God, you've got to do something. And so we're going to read this account of, the vision, of a vision and a hunger for the glory of God in a culture that's really rebelling against him this morning. And so Exodus chapter 32, I invite you to make, follow along and then keep your, keep your uh, finger there in your Bible because we're going to refer to this all morning long. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. 
fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with the great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and now came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man, strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. But now I'll go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the people, back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke 
of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I will destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at each entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have, I, you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two two stone tablets like the first ones and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Just a little text. I got uh, 64 points out of that text for this morning. So here's the context, just to set this up in the story of the Bible. Fortunately, Disney's made enough movies about Moses, so maybe us... We have the context of who Moses is, right? Moses, the deliverer, the prince of Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's household, raised up by God to lead Israel, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, out of slavery. They've been slaves and oppressed uh, in hard labor in Egypt for 400 years, building someone else's empire. But they know, these, these people who are building someone else's empire know that they are destined to be the people of God. And so... Um, God raises Moses up, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, remember this whole interplay of Pharaoh would say, okay, you can go. And, and then next day he'd say, psych, uh, you can't go. And then, God, then Moses would pronounce a plague through the Lord on the people. And, uh, and that happened a number of times, right? And the last plague was the, the death of the firstborn. And it was in the reason Israel celebrated the Passover. And so Israel is, is led out, and, and the people of Egypt are giving them their gold and their silver and their, their jewelry and saying, get out of here, get out of here. And, and then, you know, Pharaoh changes his mind, right? And he's, uh, he, he comes after them one more time, and, and the Red Sea parts, and then the, it collapses back on the Egyptians. So now this event that we just read is six weeks after the deliverance, about six weeks after the Passover, where uh, Israel is led, and after all these miracles, or these war of the gods, really, in Egypt, Israel, six weeks later, is here on Mount Sinai. I want to see three movements in this, uh, in this passage, three movements on awakening. First movement is a mourning over sin. See, Israel was not satisfied with... Um, how long Moses is taking up on the mountain with God, right? Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, and, and, and God says, really is saying to Moses and is saying to the people, I want to enter into a covenant with you. I, I want to enter into a marriage covenant, a relationship with you. And so he calls Moses up the mountain, but it takes too long. And so the people get um, dissatisfied, and they basically come to Aaron, and they say, get us some gods. We need some gods that's what we've seen and that's what we've known in Egyptian culture. See, the people of God, the Israelites, had been so shaped by the culture surrounding them, the Egyptian culture, um, that, that they need to revert back to those gods that they saw in slavery. And in fact, um, there is an Egyptian, one of the main Egyptian gods is Apis, the, the bull god. And so uh, the people of God are so shaped by the culture that surrounded them so infiltrated by the idolatry of the culture around them that in any uh, absence of hearing from God, they just revert back to what they saw in slavery, right? And then, and then Moses, you know, Aaron, he, he, uh, he makes this calf. It says he fashioned it with a tool. When he revert, I love it. When he uh, is telling uh, Moses about what happened, he's like, it just kind of popped out. Like I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. It says, in the, in the account of him doing it, is that he fashioned it with a tool. And, and so he makes this, uh, this, this calf, this golden calf, and he says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. 
which is absurd, right? It's a cow they just made with gold. Like it's to say, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And it just seems so absurd. It seems like, wow, this is ridiculous. How primitive are you? But how different is that than us? You know, we as a people can say, yeah, we, we believe we're saved by grace. It's not anything that I've done. That It's not the reason that I'm in relationship with God. And the reason my life is the way it is, is all of grace. It has nothing to do with my performance. It's just God lavishing his grace on me. And we can say that. And yet we, you know, look around at, at a world. You see someone who's broken, someone whose life is falling apart. And you're like, if you didn't make such dumb decisions, then maybe your life wouldn't be in the mess that it's in, right? How belaying an attitude is really saying I, I got where I am today because of the good decisions I've made it's not really all of great I mean I've done a, a fair bit of good myself right I did this Aaron says this is the God who brought you out of Egypt this blasphemy this taking this glory that belongs to the only true God and giving it to something else and yeah. saying This is where I find my deliverance. This is where I'll find my deliverance. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry isn't just the ridiculous mistake of a primitive culture. Idolatry is is one who knows God. And one who who should know God. One who knows God but who refuses to glorify Him. And so uh, we devise substitutes for Him. And say, you know, this this is what will give me meaning in my life. This is what makes me count. This is where I'll find my identity. This is what will save me. That, that if I could have power, or if I could have comfort, if I could have the approval and the praise of many people, then I'll, then I'll be someone. Then I'll be a somebody. This idolatry is not only Israel's. You see, Israel had gotten out of Egypt, but Egypt had not yet gotten out of Israel. And so Moses comes down, right? And he responds with anger. Smashes the tablets. Grinds up the calf and makes the people drink it. So they could taste the bitterness of idolatry. But when the people hear, what's instructive for us in this is when the people hear how God feels. When the people hear how they've offended God, there's great mourning over their sin. They're grieved over their sin. They're repentant, which means that, that there's this contrition, that there's this, this sense of being sorry, this be, of, of mourning, of, of this deep sadness over their sin, but also a turning back and saying, we want to follow after you. They're, they're heartbroken. You know, all, all injustice, all all. all you know, um, all justice is fueled by a righteous anger, right? Those who are fighting for justice or social justice are, they'll, they'll, they'll see something and they're like, that's not right. And, and it's, and, and, and so their cause of justice is really fueled by a righteous anger about this isn't the way things should be. And so, so Moses is righteous in his anger. God is righteous in his anger. But the problem, our problem is that we see ourselves as the victim and not the perpetrator of injustice. 
We see ourselves as the victim of injustice, not the perpetrator of it. We see ourselves as the liberator from injustice, not the oppressor. It's not how we put ourselves in the story. But in this story, we're meant to read this and say, yeah, uh, we're not Moses. We're Israel giving God the finger right now with our idolatry. We need to learn to grieve over our sin, over our idolatry. And friends, every renewal movement always begins with God's people mourning over the sin in their lives. Seeing the idolatry, seeing that I've given my heart to this. I'm pursuing after this thing. I'm pursuing after wealth. I'm pursuing uh, after the approval of, of the masses. I'm I'm. I'm I'm pursuing a life of, of control and power. I'm, I've given my, myself to my career and my advancement and my own fame and my reputation. I've given myself to these things and I've, I've bowed down to them and said, I will honor those things above God. Every movement of renewal, every revival begins with God's people mourning, confessing their sin, mourning over it. A second movement in this passage is a crying out to God, a crying out to God. And Moses responds, right, to, to God's revelation. In chapter 32, verse 11, he says, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. God's, God's, he's up on the mountain still at this point with God, and God's saying, um, this is what's going on down there. And he's quoting the people of Israel, saying, this is what they're doing, this is what they're saying. And it says, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Again, this seeking, this seeking after God. He says, verse 11, O Lord, he says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent? that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all this land I promised them. And it will be their inheritance forever. This stunning passage this, where Moses is, is just humbling himself before God, and he's asking for mercy. He's seeking the favor of God. Friends, if something will change, if something is going to change with the state of the church in our nation, someone's going to have to cry out to God. Someone's going to have to cry out to God. I want to see three things that he, in this prayer that of, of Moses before God. He's, first of all, asking for mercy. He's saying, you deliver these people. Remember when, when, when Moses, or when the Lord's talking to Moses, he says, um, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt. God's saying to Moses, they're your people, you brought them out. And Moses is like, no, 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 God. They're your people that you chose, that you delivered. No, they're your people. You invited them to this relationship. God says to Moses, he says, you know, let, just get out of the way. Let me kill them and I'll make you into a great nation. And Moses is so tied up with his people. He's a leader who loves his people. He says, no, 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 no. Blot my name out. I want nothing of that. I, I don't want to be made into the great nation. I don't want it to be the nation of Moses. Lord, I'm tied up with these people. 
He asks for mercy. Secondly, he, he's concerned about God's reputation, right? He says, Lord, what are all the other nations around that are watching us going to think about you? Egypt's going to say, yeah. He, the Lord didn't deliver Israel because he loved them. He delivered them so he could kill them. He wanted to wipe them out. He says, Lord, it's, it's all about your reputation. It's about you and how you're perceived in this world. You're not being worshipped as you should be. And that's the greatest injustice of all. Father, you're not being worshipped as you ought to be. And so he has this great concern for God's reputation. And then thirdly, he reminds God of his promises. He reminds God of his promises. Didn't you promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would make them into a great nation and that they would inherit the land? I just love the boldness of, of Moses in his praying. He gets in God's face. This is a man contending with God. This boldness in God. He argues with God. He gives reasons why God should act. He makes a case. He takes hold of God. Remember in Isaiah 64, that, that phrase, I think it was in verse 7, where, who is the man who's going to take hold of me in prayer? He's taken hold of God. He's wrestling with him. He's like, you said, now follow through. And he's making specific requests too. All, he, there's three prayers of Moses that we read. But he's making these specific requests. You notice that? He's like, this is what I want. This not these vague, general, indefinite prayers. I don't know if you listen to, like, so many Christian nice prayers. I don't even know if God can answer them. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this person. Would you bless them? And if it's your will, do whatever you're going to do anyway, because you're good. And like, God's like, I think sometimes he's, he listens to our prayers, and he's like, is there anything in there, in there for me to answer? What does that even mean to bless? Like, like Moses is specific. He's saying, this is what I want. He says, I want favor. I want, I want you to forgive us. I want your presence. I don't want an angel. I want your presence to go with us. Okay, fine. I'll give you my presence. will go with you. Now show me your glory. He's getting in God's face and he's arguing with God. He's contending with him. He's wrestling. Charles Finney says, I can tell a lukewarm Christian because their prayers are only about themselves. But intercessory prayers are praying for others and they're getting in God's face and they're contending and they're concerned about God's reputation and they're, they're praying for others and saying, Father, didn't you say? This is what you said in your, in your word. And so do it, act, and do it now. And they're contending with God. It says the Lord relented. The Lord relented. And did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Friends, as we look around the Canadian landscape today, like, is it anything less than a downward spiral of flipping the bird to God? Is it anything less than that? But who among us will care for this nation? And who among us is willing to wrestle with God, to lay hold of God? To contend with God for our nation, for the Niagara region, for the nation of Canada, and for the nations? Who's going to contend with God for it? And so it's, this quote is, uh, I love this quote. It's not able to be attributed to anyone, but 
because um, it's lots of people claim it. But it's a, this quote that says, "Prayer is we're in prayer. We never have to overcome God's will, unwillingness. We only have to lay hold of His willingness. In prayer, we're not overcoming God's unwillingness. We're just laying hold of His willingness." And so who will pray for our nation today? For God's fame and God's glory to be made known in our day. Third movement. Mourning over sin, concern, or crying out to God. Third movement is pleading for God's presence. You know, God says, you know, I better not go with these people because if I do, I'll probably get angry and I'll kill them. And Moses like, and so I'll send an angel instead, right? I'd be happy, too often I'd be happy with an angel, right? God, would you send an angel to help Cornerstone, lead Cornerstone, tell us what to do? Like that, that'd be all right. That would, that would seem all right to me. Hey, an angel, pretty brilliantly white, massive, fierce, strong, in God's presence, all that, you know, flaming sword, like, that sounds pretty good. But Mo- Moses isn't content with it. He says, I'm not happy with an angel. I want you. I want you, God. It's your presence I want. I'm not after an angel. I want you. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. See him contending with God? If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Presence and rest are the promise of God. And Moses said to him, If your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses is not satisfied. I'm not satisfied, Lord, with anything less than your presence. You know, and when his presence comes, things change. Things change. I've been reading a lot about the accounts of revival in, in history in preparation for this, sermon, this uh, series. And um, one of my favorite, and I just love to see the effects of, of how, you know, when God's work is intense, when, he, when he's stirring his people up and adding people to, to the kingdom, how, how things change. And one of my favorite things about... Um, the Welsh revival of, you know, about 150, 200 years ago, there's a, a, a revival in Wales. And it was so far-reaching. The, the effects were so far-reaching is that they had to retrain the animals in the mines because they, these animals were trained to only respond to cuss words and swear words and taking the Lord's name in vain. And so the, the, the effects of the revival were so widespread that they had to retrain all the animals because people were speaking differently. They didn't understand how people were talking anymore. This so, so deep and so profound was the change in the culture. And it begins with this prayer for glory. Like, I want to know you. And this tenacity with God, just being tenacious, saying, Lord, I want you. And he's always more, right? Always more, pressing in. He's hungry. He's longing. He's yearning. As soon as God says, yeah, I'll go with you, he says, now show me your glory. Like, I want more. I want more. And so God reveals his name, his character to him. The Lord, compassionate, 
gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and grace. And Moses gets on his face and worships. All right, our response. How do we, how do we respond to a passage like this? First, I think we need to take repentance seriously. Take repentance seriously. We have to ask ourselves, how are we formed by the culture that surrounds us? You see, Israel was, was brought out of Egypt, but Egypt was not yet brought out of Israel. How are we formed by the culture that surrounds us? Are we pursuing after the dreams of our culture? Do we dream the dreams of the world and just sprinkle Jesus on top? Do we have this vision of success and luxury and comforts? Do we, are we formed by the spirit of competition? Where I'm going to get one step ahead by stepping on you. And friends, it's easy to look at the world and, you know, say, how could you? I would never. Are you kidding me? But we're capable of the same any and every wickedness. We need to take repentance seriously and we need to ask ourselves, corporately but also and personally, what, how are we formed by the culture that surrounds us? And what do we need to repent of? Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. There's always something to repent of. There's always ways in which our hearts are wooed by the things of this world and, and, and where we're, we're called to love these other things and, and, and we go after these other things even in, in slight ways and, and there's always ways to reorient. There's always recalibration towards the things of God. So we need to take repentance seriously. I think we need to cry out to God. We need to learn how to pray. We need to cry out. Who will cry out? Who will be the intercessors for our nation? you want to learn to pray, come, come tonight, 7 p.m. We're having a prayer, our prayer summit where we're gathering together to seek the face of God, to intercede on behalf of this community and this nation and, and the nations of the world. So come tonight. Let's cry out to God. Pray for people and places that Christians love to judge. One of the um, disciplines that has really formed my heart over the last number of years is whenever I drive down Highway 55 towards uh, and get close to the Homer Bridge, there's the, there's the strip club, right? And um, instead of like just judging, oh, I wonder whose car that is, say, Lord, I'm, I'm praying that you would shut this place down. I'm praying, Lord, that, you would, that these women would, would find someone who would love them and that they'd know the love of the Father. I pray for these men that are searching for you. They just don't know it. They're searching in the wrong place. There's so many people and places that Christians love to judge. How about instead of judging, we could pray for them? How about you pray for your workplace? What would, it, what would, what would happen if for 10 minutes every day you just prayed for your workplace, the place where you work, and prayed for God's glory to be made known in that place? Ten, not, I'm not asking for hours and hours a day. I'm asking for 10 minutes a day. Pray for your workplace. That adds up to an hour a week. That adds up to 50 hours a year. How about you pray for three people by name who need the love of Jesus spread abroad in their hearts. They need to understand the grace and the love of God because they're ignorant of it. How about you pray for three people by name? And cry out to God on their behalf. 
We need to take repentance seriously. We need to cry out to God. We need to seek the presence of God. I was at a conference last February, and Francis Chan, I don't remember anything he said except this. He says, would you be known for knowing God? Would you be known for knowing God? I read, I'm reading a, a book, uh, uh, it's a collect, uh, uh, before bed right now, it's a collection of letters by Jack Miller, who's a pastor in the United States, who wrote, who just loved to write letters to people, um, and missionaries and, and young men that he was discipling, and, and uh, he said this, and this was a kick in the face to me today, he says, form a mental picture of what you want to be a year from now. Form a mental picture of what you want to be a year from now. Dream some holy dreams. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Expect him to accomplish the dream, but dream it. And think of qualities you'd like to replace that now, those that now trouble you. And I, was, I read that and I was like, I want to set my heart. I want to be good at seeking God. Friends, could we be a church that's known for knowing God, that we would be a people who seek or are great, who would get good at seeking God? What's standing in the way of us getting good at praying together and seeking the face of God together? Let's get in the ocean so that when the wave breaks, we're ready. So friends, this is a call to prayer. This is a call to prayer, to cry out to God and to seek his presence. You know, it's, it's not the, I, this is a, I don't know who said this, but this is not my, this isn't me. Um, I just don't remember where this came to me now. <laughs> it's not the big sins that are going to kill us. It's not the big sins that are, I think, are the biggest threat to Cornerstone Community Church right now. It's not the big sins that will kill us, but it's the constant nibbling at the things at the, from the table of the world. The constant nibbling from the table of the world, so that when the feast is presented before us, our senses are dulled and we're not hungry. We're not hungry because we've been nibbling at these other things all the time. Reminds me of the, the parable, right? Jesus tells of the feast, and he, he says the, the king sets out this feast of, of, of fat food. And he goes out and says, invites people to come and one's the guy's like oh, i just bought some land like i'm kind of busy with that one's like guys another guy's like i just got married and so i'd like to spend some time with my wife another one's like my my parents are going to die someday so i better bury them so i can inherit their land and so it's these the cares of the world just and they messed out on the feast of the king let's not be nibbling at the things of this world let's be ready for the let's be hungry for the things of god for the feast of the king. Let's pray. Father, would you would you give us that true passion, that one sincere, sincere longing after you, a yearning for you? Lord, I would confess even in my heart and on behalf of many of the men and women in this room that we're not hungry after you. That we're 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 craving other things. We're we're just hungry for like making a few more bucks or we're we're hungry for having way more friends and being really cool at school or or uh, or having our kids be really cool at school. Or um, we're after so many things. We're after the, the cares of this world in so many ways. And Father, we would confess that before you. And we'd confess that we've missed out on the feast. So often we are those people who've missed out on the feast. We've pursued other things instead. And so Father, we're asking 
right now for an outpouring of your presence so that we would we would be hungry for you lord it's a taste of you that makes us more thirsty for you as soon as we taste that you're so good we want more of you So, Father, remind us of the grace of the Lord Jesus today, that you have come to die for idolaters. You've come to die for people who've who've given you the finger their whole lives, who've rebelled against you, who've ignored you, who've, who've, who've just not cared. You've come to die so that we could be in your relationship with you. So remind us of the grace of Jesus, even as we seek you today. Make us into a church, Lord, who takes our repentance seriously. Make us into a church, Lord, that cries out to you, And make us into a church, Lord, that's hungry for your presence. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.